what we want to be able to do in that first eight seconds is create enough interest, mystery, and intrigue for them to say, hmm, why are they thanking me? That's our guest this week, Bill Gertine. He's a sales expert, author, and keynote speaker. And he works with sports teams from the Bulls and the Braves to the Marlins and the Mets, helping them grow their ticket sales. And the insights that he shares with us today are useful regardless of the world that you work in. Tools that are practical and helpful, and I'm looking forward to sharing this message with you. Hey, welcome to Communication on Point. I'm Dean Hefta, and this show is dedicated to the understanding and the sharing of insights to help you become a more powerful communicator and a stronger leader. Let's get started. Bill Gertine, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm really thrilled to be here, Dean. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I was excited for this conversation because you have such a unique background of where you do your work. So you're a you're a tremendous sales trainer. I mean, you're you're the 800 pound gorilla of sales performance, and and that's a great title. Tell us about where you spend most of your time and who you spend your time training to get better. Well, after a certain time of trying to find my own niche, like everyone else does, I landed on the ticket sales departments of professional sports teams. And I've been at that for about 15 years now. And so I have a very well-defined, very well-developed niche, and it is really thin and really deep. And so my work involves the ticket sales departments of teams in my own hometown, like the Chicago Bulls and the White Sox and the Cubs and those teams that need to sell tickets. Many people don't realize that these things don't just fly off the shelves by themselves, that they every single team has a dedicated outbound sales staff. And it depends on the demand for those seats as to how large that staff is. It could be as small as four or five, or it could be as many as 75, depending on the demand that the tickets have and the, the outbound generation that they need to do in order to get those tickets sold. Uh, for example, the New England Patriots uh, don't have a whole lot of outbound ticket sales, but the team that's at the bottom of the NFL probably has 20 or 30 uh, in any given year. So that's kind of the disparity that's there. And so my work involves helping people get better at what they do in reaching out to people, either on the phone or in person, to be able to sell those tickets more effectively. Yeah, what a neat space. You know, we've all experienced some sort of sporting event. And so to think about what's going on behind the scenes. But for a listener or for myself, thinking about, you know, there's lessons there that hopefully we can uncover when it comes to communication mm-hmm. and sales. I mean, I go back to my time in college. I said to somebody, you know, there's a lot of things I do, but one thing I wouldn't do is sales. Fast forward a few months, what's my first job out of college? It's sales. And what I came to find out was, what a great place to be able to help people is from sales. So when you encounter these sports sales teams, mm-hmm. tell us about what, you know some of the challenges that you run into or maybe some of the misconceptions or myths or hurdles that you encounter that you have to hit really head on. Well, many of the people that come into sales don't do it, like you said, on purpose. It's kind of like Denny's. You don't really go to Denny's restaurant. You just kind of wind up there. And so that's what ends up happening in a lot of sales careers. They just kind of end up in a particular place that it, it's they think they can help people, but they're not quite sure exactly how they're going to get there with it. And so I think from a communication standpoint, it's looking at where you are and seeing where you can deliver the most value for someone else. No one wants to give you a job. What they really want to know is, 
what sort of value can you bring to their organization that people will pay for? And so as young people look to sports, you know, they all have the same goal, the aspiration of finally seeing their name next to the team's logo on a business card. And that's the aspiration they have. And that somehow they have to give them a job because they, they need those tickets sold or they, there's some reason why they ought to give them the job. No, it's the other way around. In communication, we have to share with others how we can help them get from point A to point B. Nobody has to give us the job. We have to show that we can prove that we're worth the money they're paying for us in whatever venture we choose to do. And that doesn't mean just sports, but in any venture, you end life. So the teams that you work with, maybe you bring a new team on and they come to you and they say, hey, you know, we've been struggling. We got these empty seats. We feel like there's an opportunity to not, you know, bring our game up a little bit. When you come in and uh, get a handle on where they're at, what they got going on, what are some of the major um, challenges, gaps that you're encountering when it comes to how they're communicating to their uh, to their community about their team and the opportunities? Well, it's fascinating because a lot of it has to do with the culture of the team itself. Most of my work is in the U.S., but not all of it is in the U.S. We do a considerable amount of work in Mexico. And there was a particular team in Mexico within Liga Mex, which is the premier division Mexican soccer league, that had the very challenge that you're talking about. And one of the things that they asked us to do was to find out why people weren't coming. This particular team was quite popular, but they had a 30,000-seat stadium that was only half full for even the best games, and they wondered what was going on. And so we had done some research and really found, after uh, an exhaustive survey, that the main reason they were not coming is because they felt as though they were not invited to come, that they felt like there was no one that was saying, please come to our matches. They were very content to be able to watch it at home. But if someone were to ask them to come, they would gladly come. And so we instituted an, in, an outbound sales campaign that became extremely successful. And in Mexico, outbound sales campaigns are unheard of. They're not done very often at all. In fact, if they're done, they're done poorly and not very effectively. And so we were breaking culture in many ways by instituting an outbound sales campaign. But what we found was that People in this particular town were thrilled to get a call from their local soccer team and were able to find a way in which to fit them into some sort of affordable package that made sense for their budget and for their schedule. So part of that is just really understanding what the market needs and then trying to apply that in the best possible way. So when a team has me up here in the States uh, to come in, typically they have a little bit more of a knowledge of their base. Uh, but as I listen to people on the phones and see where their gaps may be, uh, there are two that really stand out. One is the way in which a call is approached, the very first several seconds of the call. And the second is how they respond to the many objections that they get, that they'll need to talk it over with their wife, or it's too expensive, or send me some information, or whatever that happens to be. And what I find is that training that is specifically targeted to those two elements of the sales call lead to the most effort that that really turns it around and that actually works well in bringing them the sales they need. So let's start with that first one you mentioned, that that how we approach the call. You mentioned those first few seconds because this is powerful whether you're selling sports tickets to the Bulls or you're you're, uh, selling you know, packages for a salon or, or you're part of a fortune 500 company. I mean, it's that initial moment where we're setting 
uh, a huge tone. Tell us more about what's going on right there and what, what do we need to know? Well, with people that study the human mind and how it works, what we are now learning, and this has evolved over time, is that people will only give you an average of eight seconds of their attention before they determine whether or not you are worthy of their time. And so in that first eight seconds, you must convince someone in a very short period of time that you are worth listening to more than whatever it is that you were doing prior to answering the phone. And so much of what we talk about is how do we influence enough in that first eight seconds to convince the listener that it's worth the next eight seconds and then the next eight seconds and so on. So you're literally winning eight seconds at a time through the process of the call. And this is also true in face-to-face, but you're given a little more latitude because it's more difficult to escape after simply eight seconds. So you have a little longer than that. But a phone allows for escape very easily uh, if you're the recipient of that call. And so we talk about the ways in which we can surprise and delight someone who's on the other end. Most of the time, uh, the calls that we are making in sports sales are to someone who we call a single game buyer or someone who has experience with the team already. They're at least knowledgeable to the club. They've been there once or twice, and we have that data in our computers. And so CRM will pop that number up, and so we will call that particular prospect. And so we know that they've been there at a particular time or place. And so we will craft our call, uh, not by saying, is this a good time to talk? Because it's never a good time to talk. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we will say, hey, I know you're busy. This will just take a moment or two. The reason for my call is to say thank you. We see that you'd been to a game to our place recently. What's been your experience beyond that game with live sports here with our sport? And so it begins to be, we start a dialogue. We know where, mm. that they've been here. We don't say, hey, we see you were here on July 17th and you brought five people. No, that sounds a little too creepy. But what we want to do <laughs> is let them know that we've appreciated the fact that they've been here before. And by saying thank you, what we're doing is throwing someone off slightly. We're actually acknowledging them. They don't know what they're being thanked for, but we're allowing them to have that curiosity that what we want to be able to do in that first eight seconds is create enough interest, mystery, and intrigue for them to say, hmm, why are they thanking me? And then move Mm. forward from the call from there. Yeah, I love that. So a couple of things that I'm thinking about is you've got this, you're immediately generating kind of this reciprocity, right? When someone's been thanked for something now, all of a sudden, I want to I want to hang in there and find out why. And now I'm feeling appreciated, and I'm appreciative of that. And so that reciprocity is powerful. And then that question, you know, following it up with a question, "What's been your experience?" really engages the mind. You know, our our minds have a hard time ignoring questions. And so now, all of a sudden, your sales team sounds like they're doing research with their prospects. So they're gathering information too at the same time. Is that right? Indeed. That's what uh, the CRM systems are pretty sophisticated in sports to allow them to collect this data and to be able to put it in the right categories so that when we call back, we understand what their history has been and what other experiences they've had. If it isn't our particular sport that we're talking to right then, what is it that they enjoy? Where do they like to sit? Is there a budget they have for that? Have they been season ticket holders somewhere else? And do they understand the benefits of becoming a season ticket holder? So yes, all of that data is something that we're gathering, even on unsuccessful phone calls, so that the next time that we call them, perhaps several months down the line, we have that to start with. Uh, that's great stuff. And certainly we don't have time to go into the, your whole training. You've got some really elaborate, deep training that you do with teams, but that's a huge 
huge tool right there. But you also mentioned they're going to encounter objections. And I could imagine those objections, like we don't have the money, we don't have the time, you know, whatever it is. But your teams have to be prepared for that, right? Yes. The, the number one thing that we want to be sure of is that when someone has an objection, that we actually have an answer for that. Now, not every objection is going to be able to be overcome in a good way. We have some really uncomfortable situations sometimes when someone says, I'm sorry, uh, that person you're talking to has passed away. And mm-hmm. they have to recover from that in some positive way. And we train for ways in which to do that. But for ones that aren't as morbid as that, perhaps, that it may be too expensive, it's not in our budget, there are way too many games in the season for us to consider uh, season tickets, we have to be prepared to answer that in a positive way, not in a combative way, but one that invites looking at the other side of the coin in that and perhaps exploring it a little bit more. And there's a specific technique that I teach that helps them to do that. And it requires them to look at objections as a gift, almost as if someone's handing you this wonderful little red box with a bow on it. Objections to some who are not in sales may seem as though they're obstacles, they're stumbling blocks. We look at them as opportunities because they don't have to tell us why they're not buying, but they just did. And so we've been given a window into their minds, which I believe is a great opportunity for us now to help. Now that we understand where they're coming from, we can address that in a way that gives them another view of that particular objection, such as uh, send me some information. That's always a big one that we get. (laughs) All right, just send me something and I'll take a look at that. Well, typically that's a stall or a put off in our world. And I'm I'm too nice to say no. That's right. right Exactly right. Because people don't want to say no because they feel as though they want to disappoint you. So they'll put you off a little bit by saying, send me some information. Now, that's not true 100% of the time. But we have to address it in a way that's positive. And so there is a method that I call it it's essentially just being able to accept this as a gift. So we're going to thank them for letting us know how they feel. So the ways we do that is we'll say things like, oh, that's good for me to know. I can appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that with me. And then go into a, an addressing of that information. What we'll say is, well, what information were you looking for specifically? Would that be a schedule or a price list, a seating chart? And they'll say one of those things. And then this is one of the the real things that, and the people are listening out there that have more information that you have on your website, or it's a way in which to get them there. This is really important for you to be able to use. We train them to say, are you near a computer right now? And the reason we ask that is because once they go to the computer, all of the information we could send them is right on our site, including prices, Uh, particular group situations, what packages we have, what on-field experiences are available for groups at a certain size. Those are the kinds of things. If we sent them everything that a team had, they'd have a UPS truck backing up to their door. And and, and sometimes we actually even say that. And to allow them to to say, okay, well, just a few moments on the phone here uh, uh, while I'm with them uh, looking at their website might be a good idea for me to do so that I can just download the things that I really want. And so that's what we're looking to do. So we're looking to extend the conversation, put that information in front of them immediately, not through three or four days of snail mail and three or four days of things that have happened to them that they've almost forgotten that they've had a conversation, but right then and there. So that's one of the techniques that we use for that particular objection. And the handing them a gift happens no matter what the objection is. We're always thanking from that, saying thanks for sharing that. I appreciate you letting me know. I'm glad you brought that up. 
Well, in, in that kind of a conversation, you're really making it okay for them to uh, let, let you know what's going through their mind yeah. because you're so appreciative of that candor. Right. We don't want them to think we're going to beat them up because there's some excuse that they have for not buying. There are some legitimate excuses for not buying. They may be laid up in a hospital and won't be out for six months. They may have some issue with uh, finances. Maybe they got laid off from their job. It would be unkind of us to say, well, that shouldn't be a reason for you buying season tickets. I mean, we have to be empathetic in our approach of these objections. But the ones that we can approach that may have some leeway one way or the other, we have to be able to approach with kindness and with some degree of understanding that, gosh, this may be legitimate, but thank you for sharing that. And then enter into dialogue rather than a back and forth tug of war. Right. Yeah. And you use the, you've used the word dialogue, you've used conversation and all of that ties into if we're going to have good communication with our prospect, with our coworkers, with the people around us, you have to have that. It's two ways. It's not me telling you or bullying you or trying to convince you against your will. Is that some of the challenge that you run into maybe with people's perception of what sales is and what the communication is in sales? Oh, sure. People believe somehow that sales is all about hoodwinking someone long enough to get them to say yes and give out your credit card 16 digits and then they can run away thinking, yes, look what I've done. That's the beginning of the relationship. The sale is not the end of the relationship, particularly in the, in the season ticket side of, of sports. That's the beginning. That's when we need to begin to show you what it is that we've promised to you in terms of the experience that we've promised and the kinds of relationships that you're going to build with your families when you come to the park or the relationships that we'll build with your clients or that your group will come out with your Boy Scout troop or your church group or whatever that happens to be and that you'll enjoy yourself. That's the old, that, by saying yes, that's only the beginning for us and it should be for many others that sell as well. Communication isn't about just uh, you know, somehow tricking someone into saying yes to you today. It's to say yes to an ongoing relationship that you will now deliver on. You know, that when I think about sports teams, it's pretty rare that they move or relocate where they're, you know, having their fan base. And so when it does happen, it's a big deal. In your book, you mentioned the power of being authentic. Yeah. And I would imagine that ties into trust. Uh, if I'm a sports team, I have to build a lot of trust with my community. How does how does that sales team and the type of conversations we have tie into that? Well, I think what you know, teams do have this uh, trust relationship with the communities in which they serve. For those who follow sports, you'll probably have seen over the years, many of the teams becoming far more involved in community efforts and uh, grassroots and, and the volunteer hours that not only the team members are doing, but everyone on the organization, whether you're a player or a sales rep or whatever you happen to do within the organization, a, a huge emphasis has been placed on volunteer hours within each organization, because not only do we want people to come and enjoy the team, but they want people to feel good about contributing to that team and all of that it means. It isn't simply just coming to a match and watching a club. It's, it's about getting involved with who they are and why it matters to be a fan of that team. And so this has become a far greater thing. And, and this can be true of any organization, as we see in the workforce in every capacity. People want to work for companies that mean far more than simply making money. They want to know, how can I make a difference personally? And will my efforts make a difference in others' lives beyond the bottom line? And so we've, in sports, have taken quite a lot of, of measures to make sure that there are outlets for them 
to be able to volunteer and to do and to, and to have people feel really good about the organizations with which they're buying tickets from. And the PR departments are busier than they've ever been making sure that that story is told. Yeah, you got to get the word out because it seems like you could have uh, three different paths here. You've got uh, organizations that are really doing meaningful, powerful, good things, Mm -hmm. and nobody knows about it. You've got, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, a PR department that says, we need to get the community to think that we're doing good things and that we're good people, even if there's not a lot behind it. And then you've got those two coming together where we're doing good things, we're making a difference, and we're letting people know because that's a great recruiting tool. People want meaning in their life. They want to be able to to have the opportunity to be a part of something bigger than themselves. I'm imagining that's a big part of that message that you bring to people buying season tickets or large group packages and things like that, that meaning side. It is. It's becoming bigger as we go. Uh, There is, it used to be where people would simply buy tickets because they wanted to cheer on the team, but it has gone far beyond that is that they want to they want to be able to relate to and be a part of something, as you said very eloquently, something bigger than themselves. And so they wish to invest in and to maintain and to keep to, to establish this ongoing presence known as the team that they represent. And so uh, it's uh, and it, especially with the millennials and those folks who are coming aboard. I know I said the M word, Dean. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. But it is a very interesting group as we view them. Because they're more of a last-minute group, but they're a very caring group. And so you're seeing in sports quite a lot of movement toward communal areas rather than individual season tickets, where there's a, a you have a place to stand, and there's several chairs there if there happens to be one available, but you can move throughout the ballpark, and you can be able to go into right field and watch two innings, and then go to left field to watch three innings, and then maybe behind the plate in this club that's behind the plate for another three innings. So you have the ability almost to wander like you would at a kind of a nightclub area that had several clubs in it, one after the other, that you could be able to wander and still experience the sporting event at the same time. So this is their community. This is the way they want to experience sports. And so there's much more of an interest in that generation in having a ticket like that versus something that's stationary for 81 games or however many games they choose to want to buy. And so we are in sports really responding to those needs in a way that we feel is really helping to uh, engage uh, consumers that want to consume the product in a different way than what we're used to. It's an interesting uh, shift that you're seeing because, you know, not only do we want in our world meaning, we also want to have a sense of control. And in our modern world, we can feel like there's a lot fewer things that we have control over. And a a shift in that sporting experience that gives people some more control affects how you communicate with people that are considering the experience. I was thinking as as you were sharing that change, last summer I went to a race up at uh, Road America in Wisconsin. And what a unique place because it was more like going to a golf tournament. If you want to go to a different turn, go to a different turn. You can wander all over the race course and it gave you the ability to have control and decide where do I want to watch from, you know, for this next hour and being able to take those lessons into other sports is an interesting trend. It is. And I think in any business that is, has been the way it has been for a very long time, I think the rewards are going to come to people who look at their business differently and say, 
what's happening over here that's working for them? And how can we incorporate that over here to succeed, perhaps in a little different way that we haven't looked at before? And so I think the time is right for many organizations that have an association that all kind of think alike to really get out of that box and to look at the way others are running their businesses and look at ways in which you could incorporate some of the things that are being successful now in those industries and adopt them to the way you do things. As a business owner, as an entrepreneur yourself, uh, what are some of the maybe changes that you're incorporating yourself, some of the changes that you're stepping out that maybe there's some lessons in there for us you know, in a large business or in a small business that we can start thinking about, you know, how the world's changing and how do we respond to that? What, what are you experiencing right now? Wow. There's a big, wide open question, Dean. I, you know, those who see a speaker or a trainer or someone who's been very successful, they think to themselves, wow, they really must have their act together. Well, we go through some of the challenges just like you do. And about two years ago, I noticed a shift in the way in which my clients were looking for ongoing training, something that would last longer than my two or three days that I might be in the market. As human beings, for those who've been in training, you may understand this or have had training, it's great. After you come out of training, you're jazzed, you're pumped, you're, you're buzzing, and everything's great. And then over time, it might be a few weeks, it might be a few months, people are like rubber bands. They go back to the same way they had been, or at least a portion of that. And so I was really disappointed in how that was going. And I felt as though there was a better way. I didn't know exactly how I could make it happen, but I started looking into methods to do that. And digital training or the what we call remote training uh, had really been coming aboard, really coming on strong the last 10 years or so. I've tried to put myself on video three or four different times, hated the way I looked, kind of scrapped it and then went back on the road and did training. And then I found two or three partners that really had the pieces that I was missing. And we created a digital training network called ISBI 360 that has digitized our training into short, what we call micro learning segments, 10 minutes or shorter. And so now what we're doing on that side is we are now training individuals in sports and entertainment, specific training that is shorter than 10 minutes at a time. So literally it's 10 minutes plus a little bit of an evaluation at the end, a little bit of a, a, a multiple choice quiz. But we're doing it 10 minutes a day rather than eight hours a day for three days. And so we're making it more like learning a language than having a fire hose sprayed at you. And so what we have found and what many, many other companies like ours have found is that this kind of training actually has a better retention rate. People use it more often. People get through the training more quickly and they're able to actually use it and talk about it with their peers. It's stickier. And so we're really excited for that, uh, to be able to do more of the, what we call the, we have a, it's a blended program. It's all, not just the videos. We actually have a live training component where we have a coach that talks to them every week and they actually have to do a video of themselves performing that which they just learned as a role play. So they send that video to their coach for critique and evaluation. So there's a lot of elements to it, but it's been very, very successful and we've moved forward now and, uh, it's, uh, we're a little touch and go at first, like any other new company, but we now have several key clients that are with us. And I can safely say now that we're legitimate moving forward and that uh, we've got some legs. And uh, so it's, it's been fun to do. And then on the other side, uh, I created a brand new keynote based on my observations with some of these young people in uh, the sales end. I saw them having such potential. 
but sometimes not being able to realize that because of some of these things that they had in their heads that were not allowing them to succeed. And so I've created a very unique keynote presentation called The Seven Voices in Your Head, uh, which I'm really excited about getting out in 2020 and doing much more. It's a very impactful program, very unique program that uses sound effects and music in a very distinctive way. Oh, that's awesome. And certainly a great example of being tuned into what are the changes that are happening in my environment? What are the things that my customers are saying to me? And can I can I hear them? Sometimes we we can be so locked in on what's working or how we've been doing things that we can't even say we, we can't even see what's changing around us. Yeah. That's that's a risk, isn't it? Yes. And as you've taught communications, part of that communication is just listening listening to those around you as to what the demands are in your marketplace, whatever those happen to be, and then responding to those in a way that you can control. Uh, I was really, uh, it's, it's funny how you could listen into certain people that you happen to like and respect. Uh, all of us have those in the world. Mike Rayburn is one of those for me. And Mike had said uh, just a couple of years ago, a quote that I, I kept it in my heart and I've actually now utilized. He said, be the architect of your own demise. Be the one that decides I'm going to change rather than the world changing you and now you're left out in the cold. Be the catalyst that makes that happen rather than having it happen to you. And so is there a little scared a part of that? Yeah, absolutely. I've been kind of scared to death here to make that change, but I wanted to be that architect of my own demise. I wanted to say this is where I was going and the market was not going to tell me that I was going to do it myself. And it's worked out extremely well on both fronts. Yeah, that's awesome. As we kind of start bringing the pieces here together, yeah. maybe I'm a manager of a team. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not trained as a trainer, but you know, my experience of providing training to managers and leadership development and those types of things, that you know, there's so much that has to happen on a, a weekly and monthly basis when you, the professional trainer, isn't there. So if I'm a manager, what's one or two insights that can help me? become more comfortable or more effective when I think about my role as a trainer with the people around me? Any thoughts on that? Oh, that's a great question. There are two that come to mind. One is that there ought to be a weekly sales meeting whereby a bit of training is done every week, whether it's done by one of your coworkers or yourself, or you bring in a video or do some sort of a handout of an article you read, something that allows people to grow and mature as individual salespeople or whatever it is that you're involved in in that week by week place, that you have that done on a regular basis, that you don't just commit to training once every six months and then just go to something else for six months, that you have this weekly growth process that takes place. And that one-on-ones with your people become something that people look forward to, that you should not have one-on-ones with someone simply if they're in trouble or if there's something wrong that you need to correct. They need to have a constant dialogue with you as their coach. I really look at management as a coaching opportunity rather than managing people because I want them to feel as though as you being the leader that you're there to help them, not to lord over them. And so on a regular weekly dialogue basis, you can help see where they are and be very adult with them and upfront to say, here's where you are, here's where things need to be and to help them get where you go. I, I've always said that those who resort management, when they get promoted to management, that they now have a new set of customers. If you've been a sales rep for a long time, you had customers that absolutely loved you and that's why you got promoted. You now have a different set of customers and it's the people that now report to you. You are in charge essentially of making sure that their lives are good 
and that they get the kinds of things they need, the tools that they need, and the time from you that they need in order to succeed. So those become your brand new customers. And how will you treat them now thinking about them as your customers rather than simply people that report to you as the boss? Yeah, that's certainly a major mindset shift that I have to go through when I move from sales rep to sales manager. That's a major transition. We could have an episode certainly on that in itself. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love the the weekly training meeting. And you know, as the leader, as the manager, as the, whoever you are, what I heard is you don't have to be the one providing it. You have to be the one that's making sure that it's happening. So you can pull in members of the team. You can pull in different people from different departments. You can get creative with it and keep it fresh, but you have to make sure that it's happening. You're the facilitator of it. Correct. In fact, if you don't give your people an opportunity to train and to be in front of people, you're not helping them develop and grow. Those people who deliver training have to be good at what they're going to talk about. So you actually learn at two different levels. One as a, a person who has to educate others, but then you have to educate yourself at the same time. And so it also shows you who has the initiative on your staff to become the future leaders. Awesome. So last question, and then we'll wrap up here. Sure. I'm sitting on a plane next to you. Uh, we got five minutes left. And I say to you, hey, great to meet you, Bill. By the way, I'm taking my first sales job. Any advice for me? What's, what's one thing? You only got a, a little window of time to impart some advice to somebody that says, I'm taking my first sales job. What do you share with them? Well, there were two things I would tell them. Find a couple of people within the organization that you trust and that you think you can hitch your star to and ask them if you could be mentored by them. Individuals who have been around for a long time don't often get asked if they can be a mentor to someone. And for most, it is an honor. It isn't something that's going to take a lot of their time, but they actually have, if they're in the, perhaps the latter stages of their career, if they've been around for a little while and they, they wish to impart some of this stuff, maybe they have this managerial piece inside them that hasn't necessarily developed into something they want to do, but they get to do it one-on-one -on -one perhaps with you. So it'd be great for them. Get a couple of people, one or two, that you can then count on to ask for help and advice. And then the second thing is I usually give them my card and I say, call me. If there's an opportunity that I can do, help you with, to talk it through, uh, please give me a holler and I give them a business card. And I would, to any of your listeners here, Dean, I would be happy to help them along with a question that they might have in their communication with others or, or whatever they think that I might help with. I'm happy to do that. And, and uh, we can post our information here, Dean, or uh, if you want me to say it out loud, I'm welcome to do that too, but I'm, I'm happy to make that happen. Yeah. So we'll, we'll post it in the notes, uh, but that's great advice the mentor approach, people with experience, especially if they're good at it, yeah. are often very eager to help others grow. They see that as a way to continue what they've learned. What's the best way if people want to learn more about what you've got going on, some of the things that you are, are doing, how do they get in touch with you? Well, there are a couple of places to go. One is uh, you may reach out to me at bill at isbi360.com. That's the letters ISB as in boy, i360.com. That's also the website, www.isbi360.com. And then for those who might have interest in the uh, the keynote I was mentioning, the sevenvoices.com, T-H-E number seven voices.com has some video clips and some explanation as to why it's a little unique and uh, why it wouldn't be something that perhaps would be perfect for the kind of environment that you have. It combines peak performance and mental health into a really engaging, entertaining 45 minutes. 
That's awesome. Bill Gertine, every time we chat, I learned something and this was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being a part of this and sharing some of your insights with the audience. Well, I'm grateful to have the opportunity, Dean. Thank you for asking me and I hope your audience learned a little piece or two that they can use and, and take to heart. Hey, thanks, Bill. You bet. What a great conversation with Bill. I'm so appreciative of him sharing his experience. And as you listen to that, I hope there was a couple things that you're able to take away that you can put to work in your life right away. You know, maybe it's how do we approach that first few seconds of our interaction with somebody new? Maybe it's looking at objections that we experience as opportunities to really engage the person that we're talking with. If I'm in a leadership position, how do I make sure that I'm facilitating the growth and the development of my team on a weekly basis and pulling people into that? These are tools that can help us leverage our activity to get better results. See, it's not about working harder or working longer. It's about working smarter. And that's where communication comes into it and tools like this that Bill shared with us. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Dean Hefta. I look forward to seeing you again next week. You know, the world that I work in is helping leaders and helping teams increase their productivity. If you have questions that you are thinking about when it comes to improving communication or topics that you'd like to see us explore, please send me an email. My email is dean at clarisresults.com. Send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Those types of questions that I get help us to guide making sure that the conversations we're having are valuable to you. Be sure to subscribe to this show if you haven't already wherever you get podcasts, and I'll see you again next week.